The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, thank you for this beautiful afternoon, uh, this incredible time of year, so pleasant outside. We're grateful for the, the beauty of the changing seasons. We thank you for your wisdom and for your power and love on display in creation. And we thank you especially for uh, how your glory is revealed in Scripture and in Christ especially. Pray that you would be with us as we study uh, Romans 8, as we finish up our study in this incredible chapter. Uh, that you would be with us as we walk through um, these words and that we would uh, derive the assurance of salvation that it's so clearly intended by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we're in Romans 8, trying to finish up this section. Um, as we walk through it, what I did last week was I kind of taught through it a little bit and we hadn't gotten to the discussion questions yet. Uh, which is what your handout mostly is. So I hope you folks came ready to talk tonight, um, but I'm going to do a little bit of sur a survey again just to get us back into it. Um, but I hope, you know, I'm just, I want to ask some probing questions that I've written out here that we can walk through uh, that will help us. So uh, could, could I have someone read Romans 8, 28 through 39? In all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to become, uh, to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I'm sorry, to the end of the chapter. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Is that, I'm just reading the pages in Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, anybody else who has more than what I handed out? Uh, like, uh, we're, we're trying to get to the end of the time. My bad on the handout, but yeah, all right. Thank you. Okay. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor debt, nor, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you so much. So this section, in my opinion, is obviously given to us by God, the Holy Spirit, through the pen of the Apostle Paul, to give us assurance of salvation, to give us a sense of absolute certainty that we will end up in heaven when we die, that nothing can stop that. There is no power. 
that can separate us from that, uh, that love of God in Christ. And so uh, he, he is walking through various uh, amazing statements and assertions and rhetorical devices such as a series of questions that he asks. Uh, all of these things tend to one end and that is to give us assurance of salvation. We're going to talk about, about that, but let me just go through these words again uh, just by way of teaching. And I just want to prime the pump, just get these ideas going so that you can answer the questions, the series of questions that I've written. Uh, after Paul makes the amazing statements he makes in Romans 8, 28 through 30, uh, God causes all things to work together for good for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. God is running the universe he is meticulously in charge of everything. God works all things after the counsel of his will, he says in Ephesians 1. A sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of God. God doesn't care about sparrows anywhere as much as he cares about us because he says that we're worth more than, than sparrows, we're worth more than anything else. He, he cares enough to mention it. But the point is the meticulous providence tends toward one end, and that is his glory in the salvation of his people. Um, and so God is working, causing all things to work together for good. They're not accidents. They are actually very wisely worked out. God does this for his own glory, those, uh, for specifically for those people who love him and are called according to his purpose, verse 28. And what is that purpose? 29 and 30 tells us what that purpose is. For those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among, among many brothers. That will answer the question. Verse 29 is a sufficient answer to the question, what is the purpose of God? And the purpose of God is that his chosen people will end up conformed to the likeness of his son, made exactly like Christ as God intended. We're not going to take his place in the Trinity. That's something we could never do. We'll never become God but we will be conformed in the way that we can be. We will be like Christ physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, in every way that we can be conformed to the likeness of his son, we will be. And then he goes back over that with more detail. Um, he says, for those whom God foreknew, he predestined. And then, and those in verse uh, 30, those he predestined, he called, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Those are subordinate steps along the way to the end that he already gave us in verse 29, namely, that we would be conformed to the likeness of his son. So as I read verse 29 and 30, conformed to the likeness of Christ and glorified are the same thing. I look on them as just different ways of saying the same thing. We will be, like Jesus said, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. We're going to be radiantly beautiful in all respects, morally beautiful, physically beautiful. Um, parenthetically, I, I'm teaching a BFL class on Sunday on the book of Leviticus. I was given this assignment by Andy Wynn. All right, so he's going through the, the 66 books of the Bible, and some time ago he asked if I'd be willing to teach Leviticus. And I was going to say foolishly agreed to do so, but I mean all scriptures God breathed. Leviticus is an interesting book. Interesting is an interesting word. All right, I don't know what to say, but when you think of Leviticus, what do you think of? Rules. 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 Okay. Yeah. Sacrifice. Okay. Sacrifice. I think of bald men and lepers and mold growing on walls. I mean, you know what I'm saying? That's in there, friends. It's, it's an interesting book. 
But it really is fundamental, fundamentally a book about holiness. It's fundamentally a book about holiness. And one of the interesting themes, I'd never noticed this before, but physical deformities in Leviticus are used to picture spiritual defilement. Physical deformities disqualify Jews, Jewish people, from involvement in the community. They're put outside the camp if they're lepers. They're put outside the camp if they have a flow of blood or a bodily discharge. They're unclean. That word unclean is there all over the place, right? What I think is so beautiful, I'm, I, why am I talking about this? I don't know. I, I, it's all I can do to get through Romans 8, and here I am talking about Leviticus. But I think it's so cool that the physical deformities, which are, I believe, a picture of spiritual defilement. For example, do you, did you know that a hunchback could not serve as a priest? Think about that. Why? What would a hunchback do? But God said no. And it's similar to the offerings, the animals being without blemish. You could, what's wrong with a, a sheep with a, with a blemish, with a bad leg or something like that? doesn't matter. You can't use it as an offering. So there's this kind of sense of, de, of def, defect and, and defilement and brokenness and all that, which I tell you will not be in the new heavens and new earth. There won't be any hunchbacks as such. There'll be ex-hunchbacks in heaven but they won't be hunchback in heaven. Does that make sense? There won't be people with, with that are lame or that have, you know, be, why? Because the body wasn't made for that. It's because sin entered the world and suffering and defilement and all that came in. And so there's that physical side. Glorification conformed to the likeness of his son will include physical perfection. Will it not? It will. Our resurrection bodies are going to be raised in glory. They will shine, they'll be radiant, and they'll be perfect. There won't be any blind people in heaven or deaf people or lepers or any of that. There'll be ex-blind people and ex-deaf people and ex-lepers in heaven, but they won't be that in heaven. And that's, it's really kind of cool. So if you have a chance to come to the BFL class, you've heard a good little chunk of it this, uh, tonight. But it's pretty, pretty beautiful. That's what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. But the most significant conformity to Christ is in our minds, in our hearts, in our souls. We will fulfill the two great commandments all the time. That's what we'll do. We'll be loving God and loving one another all the time, and, and that's conformed to Christ. Now, uh, the statement is we're predestined for that. We're predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ, and there are subordinate steps. Everyone that was foreknown is predestined. Everyone that's predestined is called. Everyone that is called is justified, and every one of those that are justified will be glorified. And the link from... Everyone that's justified to will be glorified. That is assurance. That's where we live, right? We're, we are Christians between justification and glorification. For Christians, you've been justified, you haven't been glorified yet. Yes, brother. I was in Wilmington area, and I saw a church. It said 828 church. I couldn't believe that. Like Ro Romans 828? That's, that's Romans 828. Oh, man. That's awesome. Um, that's, that's amazing. I wonder what that church does on a Sunday morning, but that sounds exciting. All right, so that's, that's what's going on 828 through 30. Then Paul unleashes a series of six questions, what I call rhetorical questions, that are heightened to stimulate our response. He wants to get a rise out of us. He doesn't want to be bored. He doesn't want us to be bored about that. Yeah, all right, so we're predestined to be glorious. No, we're supposed to be emotional about it. We're supposed to be excited about it. We're supposed to have a sense of assurance about that. 
So he says, the first is, what shall we say in response to this? Oh, audience, what do you think? And then, you know, it's a rhetorical question, but he's drawing you in. You should have a reaction to this. Then the next question, if God is for us, who could be against us? Then the next question, he who did not spare his own son, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Question mark, question mark, question mark. These are rhetorical questions. Who shall lay any charge against God's elect? It is Christ Jesus who died. Who is he that condemns? And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? These are six questions that he asks. All right, the first one I've already kind of touched on, but notice as I mentioned this last time, all of, four of them at least, have a sense of a possible adversary to our salvation. There's like an opponent that's being overcome here. All right? Um, there are those that would be against us. Aren't there? Aren't there demons? Isn't Satan against us? Aren't not many non-Christians against us? Isn't it true that a man's enemies will be the members of his own household? That sounds like against us. Didn't Paul have enemies such as you can hardly believe the level of their commitment? Paul had people against him. Right? Paul had people vigorously against him. Read about it in the book of Acts. Remember those, those Jewish zealots that, that said, swore they wouldn't eat again until they had assassinated Paul? Remember that? And, the, and his uh, nephew heard about it? And, and told Paul, and Paul told the, you know, and then they rode out with like 200 spearmen and 500, I mean, just like, that's not happening. So those guys either died of starvation or broke their vow. I, I don't know, but and anyway, think of the level of commitment that Paul's enemies had to kill him. They traveled from place to place in, in Greece, from city to city to hunt him down. He had enemies such as few people in history have ever had. I definitely think, say again, oh, Paul, yeah, he's unconcerned though, brother, I'm telling you, he's not worried about it. I've heard people say that, I heard somebody in this church say that, I know what I believe, but I don't care what Paul says, I heard somebody say that, it's like quite a moment right there, um, but yeah, like I said, he's not concerned about it at all. Um, but yeah, we have enemies. But what's the point of this rhetorical question? If God is for us, who can be against us? That doesn't imply no one is against us. What is Paul saying by that? That God's on our side. God is on our side. And if that's the case... He's saying that the power of those who are set against us is minuscule next to the power of God. Right. And I think the best chapter to describe this, in my opinion, is Isaiah 40. The nations are like dust on the scales and like a drop from the bucket. The nations are. What is God saying in Isaiah 40? The nations are like dust on the scales. What does that mean? I mean, can you imagine going to the deli and he's weighing out a pound and a half of, of sliced meat and you're worried about dust on the scales? Are you that kind of a person? Imagine being the deli person saying, like, you really want me to dust off the scale before I weigh your pound and a half? All right, it, does, it won't matter, it can't read, it can't register. Well, here's the thing, just think about scales, like, you know, you sometimes see that the, the goddess of justice, you know, blindfolded and she's got the scales. So you picture that, that you got, it's like that balance, all right. So if the nations are dust, God is infinite mass. 
Think about that, just in terms of scales. God is infinite mass. Whatever side he goes down on wins. Just wins. His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? That's what's behind this question, isn't it? If God is for us, who cares who's against us? If you gathered all of our enemies in one place, and they all, if, if, frankly, if the entire world were against God, they would lose. That's omnipotence. If God is for us, who could be against us? And I said this last week, if God is against you, then it doesn't matter who's for you, right? All that matters is God here. That's what matters. And God is with us, Emmanuel. In this verse, he's for us. God is weighing in on your side. Now, how, how much confidence should that give you? That God is putting his omnipotence behind your salvation. That's awesome. And then the next statement. He who did not spare his own son, but gave, us up, uh, gave him up for us all. How will you not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Very strong statement. What does the word spare mean to you? He who did not spare his own son. Okay. Why would he do that? The gift of Nard, right, is very priceless. Yeah. You know, there are moments to put it all down on the table, everyone, you know, all in, and mm -hmm. that is that notion of God was all in. He had nothing more he could have given, mm -hmm. and, he, and he didn't hold it back. He laid it out for us. Yeah, there's a very good example. It's beautiful. I love that. There's a very good picture of this. Um, when Jacob was re had his reunion with his brother Esau after many years, do you remember how they parted? Not well. Because Esau was consoling himself with the thought of murdering his brother. So Jacob thought it's high time to get out of Dodge. Remember that? So he left. And he went and had a whole experience with Rachel and Leah and then this whole life there and you know all that. And the time had come for him to leave his father-in-law, who was no great guy, Laban, right? And it's time for him to go back to the promised land. So he's coming back. And he hears that his brother Esau is coming with what, like 400 of his friends to greet him? <laughs> so what's the implication if Esau is riding out with 400 men to greet him? I mean, if you're Jacob, what do you think, what do you think that's all about? He's coming to kill me. And so that was when he wrestled, remember, all night with the angel, and the angel put Jacob's hip out of joint, remember all that, and he's wrestling. Well, what happens the next day is he sends out a bunch of gifts to uh, Esau, remember, and all that. But he also prioritizes his kids. You remember that? So kind of like the, the servant girl's kids go first, and then the other servant girl's kids come next, and then Leah's kids come next. And then you got Joseph. I, Benjamin hadn't been born yet. So Benjamin's like right by his side, right? Right there. What is he saying by that? Like if you're in Jacob's family, let's say you're Issachar or something like that or Dan, what are you feeling right, right now at that moment? Is there a pretty clear sense concerning dad's love? Would you not say the verb that we could use of Jacob concerning Joseph is he's going to spare him. He would like to spare Joseph from meeting his brother Esau. He doesn't want him to die. So he would be the last individual he would give. Does that make sense? That's a picture of sparing. He who would spare his own son. 
God has infinite more reason to spare Jesus than Jacob ever had to spare Joseph, and he didn't. That's pretty amazing when you stop and think about it. I mean, you think about it, Jesus' baptism, when in Mark's gospel he said to him directly, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. He said to the world in Matthew's gospel, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. I believe he said them both. To the world and to Jesus himself, I want you to know how much I love my son. So then you go back to this verse. What is the significance of this statement? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What does that mean to you? And how does it tend toward your assurance? You thought it was a valuable cause. Mm-hmm. It says something about my value to God. And if he was willing to put his best on the table, it says something very lovely about what he must think of his children. Yeah, I think, you know, and the same mentality is in Jesus that I think we see in God, but it's not said of God. But it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, scorning the shame. Would you not say the same thing was true of the Father? That for the joy that was set before what that giving up of his son, that's why he did it. There's joy on the other side of giving up his own son. I think that's true. He spared him for a reason, for a constructive, positive purpose. And what was that? To save us to the uttermost, to save, to glorify us. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up. And gave him up to what? He delivered him up to what? Gave, gave him up for, to what? To death. Death on the cross. Death on the cross. Gave him up to, to, to be tortured under the wrath of who? his own wrath if that won't break your brain I don't know what will he loved him and poured out his wrath on him it's incredible but that is the gospel is it not we believe that but we also know that 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 was a temporary situation the pouring out of wrath was a finite time on the cross and once done in one day, he took away the sins of the whole world. In one day, in one time, and then it's over. It doesn't go on eternally. Jesus doesn't suffer eternally. It was just one day, one time. As the author of Hebrews says very plainly, once for all, never done again. doesn't need to be repeated again. And God knew that, so it was, it was infinite in its ramifications, infinite in its significance, but finite in time. And then after that, triumph, glory, joy. So that's why he did it. He spared it. He gave him up for us all. What's the second half of the verse? He who did not spare, speaking of God, the God who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. What's the rest of the verse say? How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So now we have two things compared in this one verse. There's his own son and all things. Now we could insert a word to help us in our meditation, all other things other than Jesus. So you really could take all of God's possessions, all of the things in his domain, and put them in two categories. His own son and everything else. The verse implies a valuation of those two. What does is, what is the verse imply of the valuation? In God's mind, there's my own son and everything else. What is the comparison of those two? lesser in value like you get a sense vastly lesser it is a much less ask of god 
turning it around. It would be foolish. We can't imagine God saying, I will give Jesus for you, but I won't give you that. Or I won't give you that, or I won't give you that. Anything else you could list is infinitely less than what he's already given you. Well, that does beg a question. Then why does God not answer all of our prayers and give us the things we ask for, right? Does God give you everything you ask for in prayer? What's your prayer? Would you say your batting average is 1,000 in prayer? Anybody want? All right. You, some of you are saying decidedly not. <laughs> all right. I have asked for many things that God has not given. How does this verse help you understand that? Okay. Very good. Anyone else on how this verse would help us when we're frustrated at unanswered prayer? Things we've asked for and God had the power to do it but didn't give it. I like that, that approach. It's not for lack of willingness. It's not because God's stingy. It's not because he doesn't want to bless you. It's not because the thing you ask for is too expensive. None of the above. This verse tells you all of those things cannot be the reason why. Because anything you could ask is infinitely less than what he already gave you. Then why would he withhold something from us? If it's infinitely less and it's certainly not too expensive or whatever, why would he withhold something you asked him to give you? For probably multiple reason, possible reasons. One would be the same reason that my little child, baby, asked one to play with razor blades. I would say nope, because okay. there's a wisdom involved in that that the the one asking doesn't understand. Okay. I think based on our discussion earlier tonight, he wants ultimate purpose to make us conform to Son Jesus. Right. So the things he wants to give us most probably not necessarily physical things. Jesus right. had very little possession, very poor. Right. He wanted to give us character. Right. So certain material things may actually destroy it or be an obstacle to our character development. Would you think that based on verse 28, God causes all things to work together for what? good, that the thing you don't get wouldn't be good for you. God doesn't think it's good for you. And his good is ultimate good. He wants to conform you to Christ. Would you say in the end that the things that Job went through were good for him? You're going to agree or disagree? You have to agree. It was good for Job to lose everything Go through all of those questions. Be confronted by God in the whirlwind. Understand at a deeper level than ever before God's power and greatness and all that. And then have his things restored as best they could. Children can't be replaced in this world, but we know that this world's not all there is. We know that better than Job did. That's a whole different topic. But, uh, you know, at any rate, in the end, though, in heaven, Job looking back is like, I see God's wisdom in it all. And so it is for, but again, this one verse tells us it's not because God doesn't love us or it was too costly or you're asking too much. You can't ask too much. You can ask amiss, but you can't ask too much. This verse tells you you can't ask too much. Does that make sense? If it's in God's domain, and let me tell you, it is. If it's in God's domain, if it's in his realm, he can give it. If he chooses not to, it's because it's not best, not because it was too costly. Um, so, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? What does that phrase mean, along with him? It's one of two possibilities. Either 
he has given Christ and he will give in addition to with the gift that Christ is other gifts or that Christ is the giver too that Jesus is doing the giving as well not just the father but the father and the son together are doing the giving which of those two do you think Wes what do you think sure, sure. yes the answer yeah. is yes because <laughs> they're both true aren't they don't all our gifts come to us through Jesus Aren't they all blood-bought? Aren't, aren't all of them mediated to us through Jesus? Isn't Jesus the giver of the Holy Spirit? He said, I will ask the Father and he'll give you another counselor. And so we believe that the Father and the Son together send the Spirit. Um, you know, I understand there's a lot of controversy with that with the Orthodox Church, but I believe that the Father and Son together gave us the Holy Spirit. And so all of the gifts we have come to us from the Father through the Son. And so I think we can go both ways. Because we already know we have Jesus. And then he graciously also gives us all other things, lesser things, such as he thinks are wise and beneficial for us. That's the, that's the point. So anything you need to finish your salvation journey, anything you really, truly need to end up glorified, you will most certainly get. Would you think that this verse at least teaches that? I mean, there are many blessings you don't really need for your salvation journey, but they're just good things that God wants you to enjoy, like food and honey and different other blessings and he'll give it to you but it's not really the point but the things you need to finish your salvation journey he will graciously give you whatever it is that's what the verse is saying so anything needed and are there things still needed you're justified you're not in heaven yet are there things you still need what would they be can you say to God no no, no I'm good or do you still need things Heavenly sandpaper. <laughs> Heavenly sandpaper, all right. So sanctification, those kind of things. Um, you know, it says uh, in James, uh, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. But right before that, he says he gives us more grace. What does that mean? More grace. More grace. What, is it, what do those words mean to you? He gives us more grace. Think of the hymn, Grace, Grace, God's Grace. Grace is greater than all of our sin. Mm -hmm. Compared to the weight of our sin, His grace, okay. when we listen to the song, His mercy is more. I'm, I'm zeroing on the word more. So if you are given more grace, it implies what concerning you and grace? You already have some grace, and now you're going to get more. Do you need it? Yeah. Are, there, are you ever going to not need grace? It's a Tuesday. You don't need grace today. No, you need more grace. You need more grace while you're not yet saved. And I believe that that is exactly why Paul begins and ends all of his epistles with grace to you and may grace be with you. It's, I always think of it like a car wash. You kind of go in and you're getting kind of washed and then you're going out and the effects of the car wash go with you for a while anyway. Um, you know, but the idea is you kind of come into Colossians, grace to you, and you're getting graced by the word of God, and then he says, grace be with you as you drive out from Colossians 4. See what I'm saying? It's a car wash. That's probably not helpful, but that's, that's the image I have. It's, it's just a place of grace is the epistle itself. Does that make sense? He's feeding you and convicting you and strengthening you and instructing you, and he's giving you grace. He's gracing you. So he's going to give you more grace. He's going to give you whatever you need. He who did not spare his own son will not hold back, but whatever you need to finish your salvation journey, he will most certainly give you. 
All right, he who did not spare his own son will graciously give us all things. And then he says in verse 33, what's interesting, we've been focusing on God the Father, but now we kind of switch. No, not yet. All right, we'll get there. Um, Christ Jesus who died. We're not quite there yet. Sorry about my bad. Um, verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? So what does this mean? This is, this is a very... Uh, clear image. I would say a courtroom image. There's a sense of a, uh, an official legal accusation made against you. All right. Is there anyone that would be willing to do that? The accuser of the brethren. Who is that? Satan. Satan, which the Hebrew word literally means accuser. That's what Satan means. It's, it's just a Hebrew word that means accuser. And so is he willing to do that? All right, there's actually a whole vignette of this in Zechariah 3 in which this defiled high priest, uh, Zechariah I think his name is, is standing there and Satan is there to accuse him. Satan is there to Satan him. It's almost like what it is. He's, that's what he does. And then there's this voice that says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is, the, is not this man a brand plucked pluck from the fire? All right, so he's, uh, you know, rescued from the fire, he's defiled, he's covered in nasty clothes, and he's, be, he's told to be clothed like a priest in beautiful raiment. That's Zechariah 3. But there's Satan ready to go, but he never gets to because he gets rebuked by God. He gets rebuked by Almighty God. So what's, what's the sense here in verse 33? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? How does that line up with Satan? Are we saying there are, is no accuser? No, there is. Well, then what does this verse tell us about the accuser and his accusations? The charge doesn't stand. The charges will not stand. Okay. His accusations, his attacks will not be effective. What is he trying to do by his accusations? What's his goal? It's a court trial, right? What is he, what's his goal? He wants to see us condemned. Wants to see us condemned. And, and, he's, and he's right outside of Christ. Yeah, apart from Christ, he's right. It's, it's a valid accusation. Right. But in the courtroom, we have an advocate. We do. And uh, in this case, we go right from the accusation to the to justification all right it is God who justifies who is he that condemns so how does the justification relate to the accusation what is justification declared not guilty. to be declared not guilty or more positively actually to be declared righteous yeah. yeah but that not guilty the negative side is you're not guilty of your sins the positive side is you are positively righteous both of those are, and God has justified you. So therefore, the accusations, what happens then in reference to those accusations? Dismissed. Yeah. Why would we think, think about this, why would we think that we could be saved right now in a, as much as we could, in a right relationship with God, but some subsequent things would happen and we'd end up in hell. Some people believe that, actually. They, that's the doctrine of losing your salvation, right? But what would those things be? 
think there's a simple answer to that. What would, what would someone who thinks you can lose your salvation, what is the way by which you do? Catholics would call it moral sins. Sins. You would commit sins. Post-baptismal sins, right? After you've been baptized, you've, after you've become a Christian, you sinned, and you sinned your way out of the kingdom, right? That's, what, that's how they, I would think that's what they would say. It's not some other reason. It's because you committed sins after you became a Christian. You sinned your way out. How does this verse address that? Well, if Christ is paying the penalty for sin, mm -hmm. it's an infinite balance. Okay. And it can't be um, overdrawn. So. But wouldn't an individual say, yeah, but he didn't pay for your yet future sins? How would you answer that? Right? Because all of them were yet future when he paid for them. Right? All of our sins. We hadn't even been born yet. Right? And he shed his blood at that point. So God, the eternal God, has declared us not guilty. And we also know that partial forgiveness is of no use at all. Wouldn't you agree? If you're forgiven for 50% of your sins on Judgment Day, what's your destiny at that point? 50%? 80%? 99%? What's your destiny? What will happen to you if you're forgiven for 99% of your sins? You're still going to go to hell. You're going to go to hell. God knows that better than we do. Anyway, so that's what's going on here. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Notice how he goes from chosen to justified. Everyone that God has chosen gets justified and therefore gets protected by God because he, uh, God justified. So let me just stop and say, how does that help you now in your daily life? How does it help you now as you make your way through this world now? It gives me a rock to stand on and an assurance. When would you say, this is kind of similar to the question I just asked a moment ago, when would you say, because this whole chapter is about assurance, when would you say you're least assured of your walk with Christ? What are, what are my, how would you describe those moments? Don't get into great detail, but how would you describe those moments in a generalistic sort of way, when you are least assured of your own salvation? When the sense of carnal pleasure is at the highest. Through, you would agree then it's through your own sins. Can you sinfully attack your own assurance, your own security? Friends, we do it every day. Your assurance waxes and wanes. It really does. Your actual position with God doesn't. But your sense of it does. So you can sin your assurance down. You can, you can pay out that account. You can sin it down. But this verse will help you, all right? Because the fact is, Satan is accusing your conscience. He is attacking you. Flaming arrows are coming at you. Uh, Satan has two categories of flaming arrows, temptations and accusations. Right? He tries to lure you into sin, and then he turns and gets all righteous on you and accuses you of the very sins he's been alluring you to do. The greatest hypocrite in the universe. That's Satan. The most evil being in the universe, acting all righteous and declaring that we have not kept God's law. Isn't that what he's doing? Isn't he saying to God, he, she, did not keep God's law? It's like, I'm going to stop you right there. Did you keep God's law? Did you love? Did you obey? Did you? He's the biggest hypocrite. But we can't worry about him. That's for God to deal with him. But the fact is, he does accuse your conscience. He, and your conscience will accuse you. 
right? Like Romans 2 says. Your conscience. This verse will help you. Who will bring any charge against me? I have been chosen. I have been justified. Yes, I sinned. Then you bring in 1 John 1, 9. And what does that say? If we confess our sins, what? He's faithful and just. Faithful and what? Just to do what? Forgive us for sins. To forgive. Whoa. Now that should be a shock. It is just. It is justice for God to forgive you. That's mind-blowing. It would be unjust for God not to forgive you. That's the implication, isn't it, of 1 John 1, 9? It would be unrighteous for God not to forgive you. Imagine going to God and say, just give me justice. That's what I want. It's like, well, don't go like that with that attitude. But what I would say is 1 John 1, 9 says, it is righteous, it is just for God to forgive you if you are in Christ, if you are united with him, if you have repented and trusted in him a long time ago, you were justified, and now you've committed new sins, it is just for him to forgive you and to what? Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This verse is linked with that. They're linked together. You know, who will bring any charge? It is just for God to forgive you. So that's what verse 33 is saying, and it's so, so very beautiful. Uh, it is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? So it's almost like God is saying, who are you? <laughs> Jesus died for this one. Who are you? You almost have the word dare. Who dares condemned? If God has justified, who would dare to contradict God in his own courtroom? No one. So he would be silenced. Verse 33. And then it says, uh, Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So now we're focused on Christ. All right? So what's the first part? Christ Jesus died for you. How does that connect to the verse 33 that we just saw, the accusations and all that? Christ died. How does that give you assurance? The penalty has been paid. Paid in full. What is the death of Christ worth to God the Father. Yeah, it's, you cannot measure it. You cannot measure what that's worth to, to him. And we can make so much, we can make too much in some sense, too much of our sins. I have sinned so much, I don't know that even the blood of Jesus could. So I don't be that way. That's blasphemous. Your sin doesn't even come close to comparing with the infinite worth and value of the atonement. It just doesn't. Like the, the, the language I've used before is of a fire in the Pacific Ocean. Your sin is like a match, or like a torch, or like a bonfire, or like a towering inferno. Put them all in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, they all get extinguished. So some days you have big fire, and some days a little fire. It's all fire, it's all repugnant to God, but the grace of God is infinitely greater than all of it. Christ died, and that's of infinite worth. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life. What? What's that language there? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life. Why does he use that more than that language? Maybe because if God is for him, who can be against him? He, he died, but the 
father was for the son, so not even death could hold the son. More. Amen. There is a precedent to this more than that. Go back to Romans 5 and read 9 and 10. You'll see the same logic here in Romans 5, 9 and 10. Look at it. It's very beautiful. There's a how much greater argument going on. There's a logic going on here. A how much greater. Someone read Romans 5, 9 and, 9 and 10. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Do you see the much more? His life is greater than his death. That's the implication of the much more. The logic goes like this in Romans 5, 9, and 10. If a dead Jesus, his blood shed, a dead Jesus, did all that, how much more a living Jesus? That's the implication. That's the logic of Romans 5, 9, and 10. Does that make sense? And also, if you go back a little bit more, um, uh, Romans 4, and someone read ver verse 25, the last verse of Romans 4. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Raised for our justification. We usually don't think of it that way, do we? But he was raised to life so that we could be vindicated. Jesus was vindicated by his own resurrection. He was proven to be the Son of God by his resurrection. He was proven to be the fulfillment of all the prophecies. He was proven to not be a liar and a blasphemer and a deceiver of the people by his resurrection. But he especially was proven to have satisfied God's wrath and justice by his resurrection. If he never rose, we would think, no, nah, didn't, God didn't take it. But because he was raised, he was justified, he was vindicated, and in him we are vindicated too. We're justified. But here, this is what I want to say even more. Go back to, to Romans 8. A dead Jesus who says it's finished and he's dead, blood everywhere, he's dead, that justified you. How much more is the resurrected, glorified Christ who we're said, we're told here is where? Is doing what? He's interceding for you. Wow. He's at the right hand of God, the author of Hebrews tells us, and is interceding for you. He ever lives to intercede for you. He constantly is alive to pray for you. Amazing. How effective would you say Jesus' prayer ministry is? I asked you guys earlier, what are you batting in your prayer, prayers? Are you batting a thousand? What about Jesus? Is he batting a thousand? He is. Because he always asks according to the will of God. By the way, the Holy Spirit does too. Look a couple of verses earlier uh, in Romans 8, uh, 26, uh, 27, uh, 27, just Romans 8, 27. I'm going to read that, Romans 8, 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Whoa. The Spirit is praying for you according to the will of God, meaning the Spirit gets everything He asks for. Jesus is also praying for you according to the will of God. And the will of God has already been laid out in Romans 8, 20, 29, and 30. That is for your final glorification, your final salvation. The Spirit's praying for it. Jesus at the right hand of God is interceding for it. It's not finished yet. You need that ongoing prayer, and it's effective. That's awesome. And it's a how much more. The, the, the living, interceding Jesus is greater than the bloody dead Jesus in the logic. That's all. I didn't make it up. I would be like, I would want to say it, except that the verse uses how much more language. And the how much more is it's a greater thing to have a living Jesus post the cross, after the cross, 
plead the merits of his blood. He's pleading on behalf of his once for all death for you, and it's effective. It's an effective intercession. Now, if you're wondering what he's praying for, he is praying for the will of God, uh, like the Holy Spirit is. We also know in Luke 22, when he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, plural, like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. What does that mean? I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. That we would continue to the end, continue trusting him to the end. Is Jesus concerned about Simon Peter's faith failing? Would that be a problem? Not, I'm not saying is he wondering whether it's going to happen. I'm saying is he concerned that it not happen? Concerned enough that he prays? Clearly. So it would be, let's put it this way. Let me phrase it this way. Would Jesus think it's a bad thing for Satan's faith or Simon's faith to fail? Would he consider it a bad thing? Clearly, because he's interceding that it won't happen. Let me ask you another question. If Jesus doesn't pray for us, will our faith fail? I think so. Who's he praying to? The same one that gave you your faith, God. He's praying to the one who gave your faith to begin with, and he's asking that the Father sustain it, continue it, energize it, feed it. And that's what he gives more grace means. He's giving you more grace, more grace, that your faith won't fail. Satan's assaulting, Satan's sifting, Satan's tempting, Satan's accusing, he's doing all this. But through it all, Jesus is at the right hand of God and is interceding for you that your faith won't fail. That you'll keep believing in Jesus. That implies you need to keep believing in Jesus. It's dynamic. I believe in a dynamic security, not a static security. It's a living dynamic security that needs Jesus the interceder, needs, needs Jesus, uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit as intercessor is a better word. The intercess, intercession of the second and third persons of the Trinity. You need it. You're not on your own. You don't need the second and third persons of the Trinity praying for you. Imagine saying that to God. Of course you need them praying for you. By the way, how would that instruct how we would pray for others that are going through trials, let's say? Somebody gets a cancer diagnosis. How would Luke 22 help you to know what to pray for? Pray that their faith would fail. Should we do that? Should we join Jesus in praying for what he's praying for? I think yes. I think that's all we should pray for is the stuff Jesus is praying for, whatever that is. And how can we know what he's praying for? The scripture tells us. And so we can know he is praying for us that our faith will not fail. Simon went through the worst trial of his, of his life that night, didn't he? Hey, wouldn't you say that Simon Peter would say at the end that was the worst night of his life, the worst trial of his life? Through it all, though, his faith never failed. He kept believing in Jesus. Though he spoke wrong words, he said he never heard of Jesus. In his heart, he, he still believed. He was masquerading that night, masquerading as an unbeliever. But his faith never failed. And Jesus prayed for him that his faith wouldn't fail. So Jesus is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. It's a very powerful statement. So because of that prayer, and we need to understand, we underestimate prayer. Every single blessing there is in the universe comes from God. It all starts with God, and God opens his hand and gives it. And Jesus intercedes and prays. God, give him or her what they need for salvation. So he's interceding. Then verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What does that mean? 
to be separated from the love of Christ. Separated. How do you understand that word? Let me give you another verse while you think about it. What God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus said that. What was he talking about? What God has joined together, let man not separate. What was he talking about? Marriage. Marriage. I say that at the end of every wedding that I perform. I always, it's right before you make kiss the bride. You heard me say that this past weekend. What God has joined together, let man not separate. You make kiss the bride. All right? So what is this saying then? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And what is the church to Jesus? Bride. So that's divorce language, isn't it? Can anything get Jesus to divorce his bride? The implication of this question is nothing can make that happen. Nothing can separate us from Christ's love. Nothing. Now, if you say, well, what about our blemishes and our... God knows all that. Jesus knows all that. He is, he is working, but nothing's going to separate us from the love of Christ. And then he, uh, he names um, circumstances that come along. Trouble. What's that? Fl flipsis, I guess. It's like bad days. <laughs> will, will bad days separate you from the love of Christ? We start with trouble. Boy, I had a lot of trouble today. And I found out from Jesus, he's done with me. <laughs> it's like, well, that's a really bad day. You know, no, no trouble you will have will separate you from the love of Christ. And hardship, persecution will not, famine will not, nakedness, danger of sword. Now, these things that are listed here, do you think people, Christians who are going through those times, might be tempted to think that Christ doesn't love them anymore? Tempted. I'm not saying they give him, but would they not wonder where the love of Christ is in all of this? Do you think so? Look at the list. Trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. That's a pretty weighty list, don't you think? And wouldn't it be tempting at least to think that Christ doesn't love me anymore as you go through this? What is this how does this list help us as we read it? You can, you can know beforehand that if any of those things occur to you, they're not things that touch on the love of Christ. Yeah, he warned you ahead of time. Right here in this verse, those things will happen. doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean I don't love you as you go through those things, right? Did Paul face them? He did. Nakedness is one of the things he listed. He said, I've been without clothes. I've been, you know, my guess is after the shipwreck, he, you know, he probably, he said, I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I don't know what his clothing looked like after that, but it's pretty bad. I mean, he just had a lot of heart, but he said, none of it separated me from Christ's love. Now, the next verse, verse 36, is one of the worst verses in the NIV 84. Just my beloved translation. But it's a bad translation here. All right. Um, what translation did you read, brother? ESV. ESV? All right, can you read your verse 36 again? As it is written for your sake... We are being killed all the day long. Uh -huh. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. All right, NIV softens it a bit. For your sake, we face death all day long. So is there a difference, do you think, between facing death and being killed? Would, would you find any difference between those two experiences? Boy, I faced death today versus I was killed today. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I would think so. 
That is a more accurate translation. It just is. I mean, any other translation in NIV says, for your sake, we are being killed. Now, why is it significant that Paul's saying, we are being killed for your sake? What is he talking about? Who's the we? Christians, Who? the elect. Christians, the elect, that we've been talking about all along. Are they getting killed for God's sake? Yeah, I mean, ever heard of martyrs? Blood of martyrs, seed for the church? They cried out to God for deliverance, right? And they were fed to the lions, some of them. So uh, that's why th I don't like NIV's translation. It's not accurate. It's not what the Greek says. So what he's saying is, just because God kills you, Jesus kills you, doesn't mean he doesn't love you. All right? And Jesus warned them. You know, people who kill you will think they're serving God. He said that ahead of time. The, the Jews will put you out of the synagogue, and some people will think they're serving God by killing you. So he, he warned that some of you are going to have to die. Very few Christians in history have been martyrs who've been literally killed for the gospel. But it doesn't mean that God didn't love them, that Christ didn't love them. For your sake, we are being killed all day long. This is a quote of a psalm here, but what does that mean? All day long, we're being killed. Well, we sin all day long. Okay. But this is actually talking about literal death here, being killed, literally kill, being killed. So 24-7, are Christians being killed? Well, it depends on the era. It depends on the, but yeah. It happens, it's just a continual experience. It's not look occasional. This happens a lot. And then the rest of the verse says, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, or reckoned, thought of as sheep for the slaughter. Who's doing that thinking? Who considers Christians sheep for the slaughter? Interesting question. The enemies of the church? The governments? God? Now that's an interesting question. Why would God consider us sheep for the slaughter, fair game to be killed? Well, he did that with his own son, didn't he? And if he considered his own son sheep for the slaughter, why would he not do that same for us? Keep in mind, this world is not all there is. The next world is the world to come. If you have a martyr's crown, you're going to be greatly honored because Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. He's choosing a great reward for you. So I think it is God who does the reckoning here. I know the humans are doing the reckoning. Hey, they're sheep for the slaughter, but it really is God who's willing to kill us for the spread of the gospel. No, in all these things, we are super conquerors, like better than a Marvel heroes, all right? We are, we're more than conquerors. We're going to super overcome these things. I like this more than conqueror image. It's similar to 1 Corinthians 15, which says death is swallowed up in victory. What does that mean when you look at that? Death is swallowed up in victory. I would think it's like a basketball game that you win by 56 points not by a buzzer beater when you were losing most of the game. You eked out, that would be eking out a victory. No, no, death is swallowed up in victory. We, yeah. Our victory over death is eternal. Forever we're going to be singing praise songs over death. Death itself is thrown into the lake of fire. The death of death in the death of Christ, John Owen wrote. Death is going to die. 
forever. And we're going to celebrate. Death is swallowed up in victory. That's how we're more than conquerors. That makes sense? We are like super conquerors because of eternity. Forever we're going to be overcoming all these things. For I am persuaded, convinced. I like that word. I, I've been talked into this thought. That's what I've been trying to do tonight, last couple of weeks. I'm borrowing time here because I want to finish Romans 8 tonight. Just so you know, I'm not going to be here basically in the middle of the week for about a month. <laughs> I'm doing a series of conferences and other things. So Andy Wynn and Wes are going to be teaching First John. First John. Not Romans 9. I said, no, please don't. I, I want to do, do Romans 9. So when I come back, it'll be the first Wednesday in November. And we'll just resume our regular pattern. But these guys are, are going to be teaching. A, who's, who's first up next week? Okay, awesome. First time. Awesome. Fantastic. All right. I'm convinced. What's that? Huh? I didn't hear you. Sheep for the slaughter. All right. Yeah, there we go. All right. I'm convinced. I'm persuaded uh, that neither death nor life will be able to separate us. All of this is separate us. Death will not separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. You will die and God still loves you. That's awesome. Life will not separate you. So that means anything that will happen from now until the day you die will not separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither angels nor demons will be able to do it. Demons are trying. They actually are scheming and attacking and trying to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. They will not be able to succeed. They will not because God will protect you. The hedge of protection will work for you. They will not have unlimited access to you. The present will not separate you and the future won't. Now that's a comforting word. Nothing that could happen to you in the future will separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, you have to have an electing sovereignty of God view of the love of God here. If you have a weaker view of the love of God, God loves people, but if they don't choose him, it's like, no, no, this is that electing sovereign love. He doesn't love, but gee, I had to send you to hell. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the sovereign electing love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing in all creation will be able to do that. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.